Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Cecilia Munoz about the recent Supreme Court decision protecting over 700,000 DACA recipients, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA. Cecilia Munoz was a lead architect of DACA. She is a civil rights and social justice advocate and policy expert who served as domestic policy advisor in the Obama White House. She currently serves as a vice president at New America in Washington, D.C., and is the author of a new book called More Than Ready, Be Strong, Be You, and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. That sounds like a great title. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Cecilia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Cecilia, how is your spirit these days? Just how is in the middle of all this, how is your spirit? Honestly, it's troubled. You know, I never thought I would live to see a time like the one we're having now where we are struggling to watch out for each other and keep each other healthy as a nation, where we are facing the challenges of, you know, a long history of racial violence and, and racism, you know, and I think a lot of us are asking questions about how we got here how we can do better, and what is ours to do in order to help us get to where we need to be. So um, I'm feeling all of those things, to be honest. You work with many people on comprehensive immigration reform, which proved very difficult because of the Congress. I was one of those people that got to work with you. How did the idea to protect DACA recipients or DREAMers come to be? What inspired you and your team to pursue this as a solution? Well, as you know, President Obama was very, very adamant about immigration reform, about trying to get what needed to be done accomplished through the Congress. It's why he asked me to serve. I served all eight years in his White House. And we came very, very close. The DREAM Act came within five votes of passing in the December of 2010. And in 2013, we passed a, a big immigration reform through the Senate. Um, and we knew we had the votes to get it through the House, but we couldn't get the Speaker of the House to bring anything to the floor. So we could see the finish line, but we couldn't get there. And DACA is really a, a product of that conversation of the failure of Congress to act to do to protect these young people who are, you know, Americans in every way, but on paper, as the president used to like to say. Um, but it's also a use of enforcement authority. I mean, as a legal matter, what DACA is, is, say, is to say, as a government, we have large numbers, 10 or 11 million undocumented people, which Congress has rendered deportable, but we're going to make choices about who we choose to remove. And, and the DACA recipients are an expression of the folks who should be the lowest priority. So the policy basically says, if you're a low priority for removal, you can come forward and get protection against deportation and work legally and go to school um, and, and, you know, get on with your life. 
And as we say, 700,000, it was originally as many as 900,000 people participated. And it meant that they could study. It meant that they could work. We now know that legions of them are teachers and students and lawyers. And 29,000 of them are medical personnel on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, so, so DACA is both a use of enforcement authority, kind of an aggressive use, frankly, but really because Congress failed to do its job and President Obama stepped forward to do as much as he could. You know, that history uh, that you just described uh, was so significant back then. And not everyone today, not all these young immigration activists know that history, but that 2013 Senate bill was bipartisan. And we in the faith community, as you know, were working on both sides of the aisle to get that passed. It was a lot of work, but it was bipartisan. And you probably remember we were told, we were told, three of us, three faith leaders told by the Republican leadership in the House, straight in the eye, promised us they would have that vote from the Senate, that bill come up for a vote either one time or in pieces, but they promised that would come to a vote in the House. And they told us that, promised that, and they lied to us. It didn't happen. They betrayed our confidence. And so we we were stuck there with a bill that would have passed the House. Clearly, as you said, would have passed the House by a large majority just by calling it for a vote. But Mr. Boehner and Mr. Ryan looked me in the eye and said, I promise, we promise this will come up. And it didn't. So this is really a betrayal of the faith community as well, who were working so hard to get that bipartisan bill passed. But when it didn't, we were stuck. And then DACA became, well, let's at least protect these young dreamers. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, DACA actually happened in 2012 before the Senate vote. That's right, before the vote, right. But it's uh, it happened two years after uh, Congress failed to pass the DREAM Act. Um, and, you know, at the time, we thought it would be more controversial than it was. You know, it was a, it's an unprecedented use of enforcement authority. It affected a large number of people. Um, and we weren't at all sure how welcomed it would be, even by the president's own party, because, you know, we worried that a number would think, well, this is the prerogative of the Congress and not the executive branch. But the most powerful thing about it, really, is the power of the dreamers themselves, that even... The usual critics, the people who love to criticize the president's actions, were pretty muted when DACA happened. And at the time, we understood it to be because the stories of the of the people that DACA affected were so powerful. These were people who had grown up in the United States. They knew no other country. They What they wanted to do was study. What they wanted to do was work. What they wanted to do was make a contribution. Uh, and the country responded to that. And we know we knew then that more than 85, 90% of the country supported the dreamer's ability to stay. And that continues to be true. Uh, just in the last few weeks, there have been polls showing that a, not just a majority of the country, but also a majority, the vast majority of people who voted for President Trump believe that the dreamer should be allowed to stay. And that is, that's a testament to the power of their stories and their lives. It really is. I hope people heard that 85 to 90 percent. And I I remember I was on a flight to Omaha, Nebraska, and I was sitting next to this business person and I wanted to I was coming to speak in Omaha and I wanted to know what he thought about things. And he was a a Trump supporter and he was 
clear, committed Republican. I said, how about those dreamers, those documents? Should they be deported? He said, oh, no. He said, those are good kids. My kids go to school with those kids. They're, they're serving in the community. We like those kids. They should be able to stay. So a whole lot of people, because the dreamers won over them. They won them over. The dreamers won over most of the American people just by the way they were living their lives. And that was a real power. But they always said, not just us. We care about our families, too. They didn't want to just be exceptions, but they were, they stood out, they led, and they led in risky ways, and they won a whole nation over. It was amazing to see. Although there's still, you know, even though DACA continues to protect them, and we had this great victory, frankly, an unexpected victory in the Supreme Court, they're still very much at risk. What the Supreme Court said was that the Trump administration failed to follow proper procedure when it attempted to derail DACA. And the door is wide open for them to revoke the policy if they follow proper procedure. And so this, unfortunately, isn't over. And the, you know, uh, uh, the government officials who are responsible for the decision making around this policy uh, are saying that they will do the work of dismantling it. And you know, in spite of the fact that the, not just the vast majority of the country, but the vast majority of the president's own supporters disagree. Well, that's my next question. Uh, as, as you know, DACA was never intended to be a long-term replacement for comprehensive immigration reform. And while the DACA decision is worth celebrating, which we did in our staff meeting today, it does not protect from a potential second Trump administration to terminate the program and even deport more of the 13 million undocumented people living in the U.S., so you're you're so right. We talked today about let's let's savor this moment and then strategize. So so where do we go from here? What's next? Well, um, I think several things. One is that for the DACA population themselves, anybody who is eligible to renew their DACA status needs to come forward to do it. Um, I think the the momentum coming from the Supreme Court decision is a new opportunity for them to continue to do the courageous thing and tell the stories of their lives to help, um, you know, continue the, the, the enormous support that they're getting around the country. And then frankly, you know, the DACA recipients and their families and their communities and the people who care about them are organizing and making sure that it is well understood that they are still at risk and that um, as long as this president is president, this policy could end and their lives could be completely unended, upended. So uh, that is uh, that organizing effort is very much underway and it throws into sharp relief that for this population, as well as for so much else, the stakes um, of this next election are really very high. Indeed, very high. How, how do you think that because of, of this decision, which as you know, is very unexpected, most of our young immigration activists uh, on Wednesday night went to sleep feeling very discouraged, very depressed, thinking that the decision would not come out well. And as they told me this morning, they just went to bed just really being hard, feeling hard to sleep. And then the next morning, they were unexpectedly surprised. But now are organizing just in the way that you described. So how could that make perhaps immigration reform uh, a primary election issue in this fall campaign? Well, I, I think we know 
immigration will be an issue in the fall campaign because the president intends to make it an issue in the fall campaign, but not perhaps not the way that you or I would would hope. Um, you know, he is doing things like paying visits to his wall. Um, he is doing things like accusing even DACA recipients of being bad people. Um, you know, he's going back to the playbook that he used in his election campaign four years ago in the hopes that that will that he will be able to do what he did before, which is ride this issue uh, to victory um, in a way which is really quite hurtful and really quite um, divisive. So I, I think we can expect the immigration issue to be a factor in the campaign. Um, I, I, this Supreme Court decision has made DACA a factor in the campaign and created an opportunity to remind the country to, to ask themselves what what is the point of the actions that the president's taking? What possible benefit could there be to revoking status, which allows these the DACA recipients to work to you know to to uh, serve in our hospitals in the middle of a pandemic, to live their lives as you know teachers and students and do the other things that they're doing, which strengthen our country? What is the point of stopping that exactly? And what does that say about the people who are governing? and the choices that they're making. Well, you tweeted on June 18th when SCOTUS ruled in favor of keeping DACA uh, that it's not in the Trump administration's self-interest to pursue dismantling it. You said Trump and Stephen Miller may or may not grasp this, but the majority of the country, including majority of Republicans, agree that we shouldn't remove the people who benefit from DACA. Now, we know that Trump ran his 216 campaign on anti-immigrant sentiment, as you just said so eloquently. How do you think we can fashion a debate, make a debate around immigration, uh, one that could really influence the outcome of this upcoming election? What's your advice for how to create that debate when they're going to do what you just said? They're going to try to appeal to the fear and the hatred, even the violence that's out there in the country. But how can we frame this debate in a way that really could influence the outcome of this this election? So I think that what that asks of us is to exhibit the same courage that the dreamers themselves are exhibiting and engage our neighbors, engage our congregations, engage our communities in a larger conversation about who is it that we want to be as a nation? How do we, what is our approach what is it that we want our approach to be to the stranger among us? How do we um, lift up our best values, our most cherished values in this conversation about, about who we want to be as a country? Um, I, that's, we, we've put a lot on the shoulders of immigrants themselves to tell their stories and to make sure that they're visible and to make sure that the country understands how much we benefit from their presence here. The rest of us also need to take up the case. I mean, what we know is that the that those the voters who um, are excited about President Trump's wall and are excited about things like eliminating DACA and get excited when he accuses immigrants of the of terrible things which are not really true, um, that those folks are not the majority of the country, but they have intensity. They are this is a thing they believe so deeply that they will vote on the basis of it. Those of us who believe differently need to also be, be part of the conversation 
and not just leave it to immigrants and immigrant communities to lift up their own stories. They, that needs to be um, everyone else's work, too. No matter the outcome of the 2020 election, we need a plan for the U.S.-Mexico border. In a New York Times article from July 2019, you state that this is a refugee and humanitarian crisis in our backyard, fueled by the inability of governments in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to protect their own citizens from violence perpetrated by armed gangs and drug traffickers who act with impunity. It is also fueled by economic desperation, the impact of climate change in the region, and a host of other challenges that this administration is ignoring as it grapples with the migration that ensues. So after the DACA decision in the fourth year of this presidency, what initiatives and actions are on the top of your mind right now? What's most urgent in this work going forward? You know, as long as we think of what's happening at the border as simply a border crisis, we will be limiting our capacity to address it effectively. We need to understand that we have a refugee crisis in our hemisphere and that the the humane way to address a a refugee crisis means both looking at what our actions are when people approach our border, which is something we very much need to change, but also what our actions are to prevent the violence that people are fleeing from in the first place. And what we do as leaders in the hemisphere to create places where people can go to safety without having to cross all of Mexico to get to the United States. So we could be, and in fact, at the in the last years of the Obama administration, we were beginning to lead a, a regional response, a hemispheric response that united multiple countries in the region to ask ourselves the question, how do we keep people safe? How do we make a determination of who's a refugee without them having to leave the region? And how do we find multiple places of safe haven so that um, uh, people can get their, get to safety, can get their children to safety without having to undertake the incredibly dangerous journey of coming all the way to the United States. Um, so that's uh, what we need to do. And it is something that we had started doing that in the Obama administration that got dismantled uh, by the current administration. But there's no reason we can't mm-hmm. pick it up again. It was really extraordinary to see when, when uh, you know, taking kids from their migrant parents and putting them in cages just created this response around the country that I don't think the Trump administration expected. And we saw vigils we were part of organizing them all over the country. And I was noticing how how young parents brought their kids to those demonstrations, even infants. And normally when people go to demonstrations, they leave their kids with a babysitter or something, but they brought their kids as if to say, wait a minute, these are our kids too. That struck something in the heart of this country. It did. It, uh, I have to say, I am still haunted by what was done in our name. Because some of those families have yet to be reunited. We took people's babies without any plan for how we might reunite them. And then we deported the parents. And we haven't found them all yet. Um, and we continued to do it even after the president made a commitment that it would stop. Um, that was done in our name, in your name, and my name, and in the name of the rest of the country. And it, I believe it will go down in history among the worst things we've ever done. Um, and I, I have to say it weighs heavily on my conscience, and as it should, I think, weigh on all of our conscience, because this was something the government of the United States did. 
to our fellow human beings and to and to the most innocent and most vulnerable humans who were tiny children. Uh, I, I can't get over it, and I think we shouldn't. We shouldn't indeed. I remember conversations even in the Senate, even with some Republicans and Democratic senators in quiet, uh, confidential discussions in offices where people were appalled, but the inability uh, or in unwillingness, it's not inability, unwillingness to speak up on the Republican side was just stunning uh, with very few exceptions. And I remember there were evangelical Christian Republican women who were saying things like, life at the border is as important to me as life in the womb. <laughs> so it began to cross boundaries because of what you're saying was so stark and so contrary to our, to not just our, our best values, but our, our religious values, our, our faith values. Uh, and, and I think those are the moments that really either open us up or force our silence in ways that really uh, destroy our soul as a nation. I think that's exactly right. And I, and that you put it in terms of our soul as a nation is exactly right. I mean, I think many of us have asked ourselves, you know, if we had, if we had been Germans in the 1930s, who would we have been as we saw the world beginning to change around us, as we saw, fundamental inhumanity begin to take shape. You know, we, we, I, I, you know, we like to think we would have been among the people who stood up to that kind of evil. And I realized as the, the situation at the border unfolded that we were living through such a time. And the answer to the question, who would I have been had I been in Germany in the 1930s? The answer to that question is, what are you doing now? In fact, there were comparisons to, um, uh, if they do this to the immigrants now uh, and we say nothing, <laughs> who will they do it to next? Which was, you know, Martin Niemöller, a Lutheran pastor, asked that question in the 30s. And the question was raised again from him, even in the conversations that we went through around that time. When, I, when we met, you were in the White House already working and all these things, but you'd been an activist before and you're an activist again. And um, I think, you know, you can help teach a movement about um, uh, how to be how, how to be in a movement and have different roles on the inside and the outside. I remember you were authoring DACA and all the rest and that there was, but you also, I remember, felt some real tension between your role as both an activist and a key White House official, especially when you got some critique from activists about excessive deportations and the like. Reflecting on all that now, what is your best sense of the roles between political leaders and grassroots activists and movements like on immigration reform? What are the inside and outside roles within justice movements? I think it's I think of it as being when it's when it's operating well, we're like, you know, any sports team um, where you, everybody plays different positions, but everybody understands what their role is and how those roles connect in order to be successful in, you know, in scoring the points or getting across the goal line or however you want to construct the sports metaphor. Um, when we were working at our best, we within government understood what an advocate's job is. Their job is to hold our feet to the fire um, and lift up what's happening in community that we may or may not see. 
and and the job of people within government is to govern and to and to follow the law, but to do it in the way which best reflects our values and best protects the you know the human beings who are our responsibility. And those things sometimes, there are most of the time, are intention, but those there are ways to manage that tension where everybody is pursuing a common set of goals. And there are ways to manage that tension where everybody descends into name calling. And I've experienced both. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the challenge for me as a person who is governing, as I said to the president, especially in that summer of 2014, when we were faced with the crisis of large numbers of unaccompanied migrant children, imagine people, young, you know, children being traveling across Mexico alone or with smugglers. And I told the president, I'm examining my conscience every day to make sure that I feel confident that we are doing the best we can with the tools that we have. And the tools that we had were insufficient. And that felt terrible. (laughs) Um, But I, I think it's important for people in government to listen and to examine their conscience every day. And I think it's important for advocates both to hold up what they're seeing and make sure people in government can see it, but also be able to work constructively and find where the openings are that everyone can walk through together. And movements have to understand that the movements that are successful have to work both inside and outside. And walking into the White House for some of those meetings with you and the president and other people, I would look at the sidewalk outside uh, and some of us who walked in had been before arrested outside in the sidewalk. In fact, that led to some secret service clearance problems in some of those first meetings. But that conversation has to take place both on the inside and the outside. And that tension was felt on the inside and discussed pretty openly in meetings that I got to be in with you and some others. So that tension is something we have to understand better that movements always need that kind of work, both on the inside and the outside. You're working now for New America, a think and action tank. I like think and action tank, think tanks in DC, but this is a think and action tank. Spearheading some interesting work to solve social issues with new and creative uses of technology and data. So what projects excite you today? So I have a team that's working on the response to the pandemic. Um, the, in particular, the ways in which we're trying to reach the most vulnerable people, the people who are suffering economic hardship as a result of the pandemic. You know, Congress passed uh, a law to give trillion, put trillions of dollars into the pockets of people who have lost their jobs. Uh, but as many as half of those people aren't getting, aren't gaining access to those resources. So, the, you know, it's like Congress is trying to get dollars into the pockets of people, but they have chosen pipelines for distributing those dollars that are broken. And so I have a team that is really right now up to their eyebrows in identifying who isn't getting the help they need and why, and how can we both fix that in the immediate term and make sure that in the next rounds of stimulus, which we believe need to happen, that we don't make the same mistakes. Um so we've. It, I'm. I'm proud of that work. It is immensely difficult because we're both trying to solve problems in the immediate term, but also change the way policymakers uh, do their jobs in order to prevent these kinds of problems in the future. So, tell us about 
your new book. Uh, I love the title, More Than Ready, Be Strong, Be You and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. Tell us about the book. Well, you know, when I left the White House, I didn't think that I was going to write a book. But I got pushed, particularly by women in my life, to ask myself the question of what did I have to say and to, and to whom might I say it? And I realized that through much of my career, I've been frequently the only woman in the room, frequently the only Latina in the room. Uh, I interviewed seven other women of color in preparing this book and realized we all go through similar experiences where we doubt ourselves, where people in the room with us tell us that they doubt that we belong where we are. And uh, so this is a book of lessons that I've learned over the course of my career and that other women of color learned um, that will hopefully be useful to other women and particularly women of color, because they're the, we have commonality of experience, but we don't always talk about it. We face these kinds of doubts, uh, but we don't always talk about it. And uh, it, my book is sort of an offering to women, and in particular women of color, uh, to recognize ourselves as the leaders that we already are, because the world really needs us right now. Well, having had the chance to watch you sometimes in those situations and rooms, this is a book that I'm really eager to have people read. So thank you for writing it. Now, you said at the beginning that you were troubled in your spirit, and I certainly understand that. But to end our conversation today, let me ask you, being troubled, as indeed we all are for uh, many of these, uh, of the same reasons, where are you seeing hope and joy these days for you? Where do you find and see the hope and the joy that can keep us going? You know, in a way, the thing which is troubling is also the source of hope because all around me, I see people asking themselves, how did I not know how bad police violence was? Uh, How did I not see what my neighbors were telling me about what was broken? Uh, and, and how can I do better? How can my community, how can my workplace, how can my congregation do better? And, and young people especially are insisting that we do better. And that's where I draw my hope. They, we are all feeling this turmoil. We are all asking ourselves these questions. And that's how change happens. And so I take great hope from that. You've said several times in this conversation, you added congregations not just communities, but congregations. And you certainly felt the impact of faith communities in your work at the White House and before and and since. But why do you always mention congregations in the role you think they ought to play or can play? So, you know, Jim, you and I grew up in the same hometown. Um, I grew up in, in the Roman Catholic faith. And the church that I grew up in, in Michigan, is still... All, all white, um, and the community that you and I grow up in is still pretty isolated in the sense of racial diversity and ethnic diversity. And I think sometimes in our faith congregations we get comfortable, and we don't ask ourselves the questions of how we can be better connected to people who are not like us. Um, and so that's why I bring congregations, and we have. Um, Great moral authority coming from, you know, the churches that we are part of, but also, frankly, great work to do. And, I, you know, there are um, uh, 
there's an important role for people of faith in helping us remember who we are trying to be as a country. And I hope that we are challenging ourselves to do that work. The the church that, that we're a part of as a family is a is a multicultural church, mostly millennials. Um, Joy and I are the oldest ones in the congregation. Our boys are the age of most of the people in church. So they had a march. Uh, this Sunday, our service was a march, uh, carefully socially distanced and all, but it was a march. And I saw all these young uh, white millennials, along with all the people of color who were leading it. But they had signs like one had a, a Corinthians text on one on their sign. And the text was, was one that we have often paid no attention to. It says, in the body of Christ, if part of the body is suffering, we all suffer with that part of the body. And when you've got the black body of Christ, the brown body of Christ suffering so much, and the white body of Christ is not even, as you say, acknowledging or understanding the suffering, let alone standing with, that's a biblical problem. That's a Corinthians problem. So here's this young white kid carrying this Corinthians text in a Black Lives Matter march, which I thought, now there is an example of, of some deeper thinking going on and looking at the scriptures again in new ways. So that to me is also a sign of hope. Well, you are, uh, you blessed us today with this conversation. I just want to thank you for the work you've done and for what lies ahead. So thank you for being with us today, Cecilia. Thank you for your work and thanks so much for having me. To hear more from Cecilia, follow her on Twitter at cmunoz, C-E-C, Munoz, and check out her new book entitled More Than Ready. Check that one out. And find her at ceciliamunoz.com. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. So blessings to all of you for the soul of a nation.